here, here's how that works out. For example, if you were starting out in Tokyo and flying to Philadelphia, and your goal was to land at Philadelphia International Airport, if you were off by just one degree, we're not talking 90 degrees, 30 degrees, not even two degrees, just off by one degree, you would miss your mark by some hundred miles or so. And so you would end up landing somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean or worse, some part of New Jersey, if you were off by just one degree, right? And, and that's sort of an interesting sort of factoid because you begin to think, you know, how big is a degree? It's not very big at all, and yet a shift, even such a small shift, what seems like an insignificant shift, you know, a, a, a variance that you might not even notice or it's not even worth quibbling about, can have such a drastic impact on where you end up. You could be so close and yet end up so, so very far off the mark. I say that because what we're considering today is that that same kind of reality can happen in spiritual life, right? That you can be headed in a certain direction, headed even in the right direction, and yet take a tangent, and it can be the slightest of tangents, off by a degree, and yet find yourself miles and miles off course, that you can shift in this slight and subtle way. And today, I want to consider a shift in a slight variance that many, many, many people take. In fact, if I were a betting man, I would bet that you have all taken it at some point. I know that I certainly have. And if you follow that trajectory and do not correct the course, you could find yourself miles and miles off course. So then, wh what is this sh subtle shift? It's called legalism. Legalism. Okay? W what does legalism mean? Legalism is not a word you find in the Bible. It's an idea and, and a truth. And here's what, for our purposes, I'll define legalism as. Legalism is the human effort to gain God's acceptance through human performance. I'll say that again. For our purposes, legalism is our human effort to gain God's acceptance through our performance. Now, why that is so variant from the gospel is because the message of Christianity, the central message of Christianity, if you boiled Christianity down and asked, what is the Christian religion about? It's about a word that Christians call the gospel, the good news. What is that good news? The good news, and this is what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview and religion, because everywhere else you find that you've got to be good enough to get to God, and the central message of the Christian faith is no one's good enough to get to God. And God was so good that he came to get to us. And that's the message of Christianity. And so why legalism is so against Christianity is because essentially legalism takes Jesus out of the equation and says rather than it being that Jesus came and lived the life that we were supposed to live and none of us have and died the death we deserve to die but none of us needed to, that instead of it being that Jesus and trusting in him becomes how we get to God, we say, I'll take care of that. Rather than it being that by trusting in Jesus, we have through his performance 
received acceptance with God. Legalism says, I will gain, not receive, I will gain acceptance with God through my performance rather than Jesus. I if I were to describe it, I'd be saying it like this. Legalism is trying to earn or gain or achieve God's acceptance by doing certain things or avoiding other things. Legalism is trying to gain or achieve God's acceptance by doing certain things or avoiding certain things. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, that makes perfect sense to you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I can imagine how fuzzy all of that sounds. Hopefully, it'll make sense as we go. But he here's what I want to say. All of us, at some point in our lives, take this subtle shift. All of us at some point in our lives begin to stray even by one degree and are headed down trajectories that could end us up in places we don't want to be. For example, if I were to ask you right now, how does God feel about you? If I were to ask you in your soul, right now, what does God feel about you? I'd imagine that for many of us, there's sort of this battle going on in our mind, which is I desperately want to believe that he loves me, but there was that thing that happened last week, or there was that thing that I did, or that thing that I didn't do, and, and what's at the bottom of that battle? At the bottom of that battle is you are trying to measure whether your performance has measured up to achieve God's love or receive God's love? Have I, through my performance, been worthy of God's love this week? Or there was that thing, or that other thing. At, at the heart of all of it is what? All of us have this tendency in the human heart to shift. Even if it be so small, even if it be just a degree, we've all got this thing in our hearts that shift. We do it all the time. In fact, I'll even say this. Some of you are here this morning because of legalism. Because for some of you, church is a box that you've got to check. And you've got to check that box every week so that when you're done, you can show God your perfect attendance and he can give you a gold star. Right? And that's your plan. Your plan for your eternal life is that you'll one day stand before God and show him your attendance. And hope and, and, and say to him, look. Every week, I was there. And this whole thing for you is just another check on the box, another part of your resume. And, and so rather than being driven here because of love for God, some of you drive here to get God's love. And that little difference makes all the difference. You might say, Ajay, you're just playing with words. You're rearranging words. And I'm telling you, that's the subtle shift of legalism. It's the difference ever so slight that matters and makes all the difference. Some of you are not driven here because of love for God. Some of you are driving here to get God's love. And that simple shift is the difference between legalism and the gospel. Right? All of us have a tendency to walk down this. And, and what's so tricky about this is that legalism is so close and looks so much like authentic Christianity. It's just off by a hair. It's off by a degree, and, and yet that degree can have you hundreds of miles off course. And just as hard as it would be, if you could imagine, imagine a 747, massive in size, 
thousands of feet in the air, going hundreds of miles an hour. Imagine it didn't have modern equipment. How hard would it be for that thing to know that it had veered one degree? And as hard as that would be, so hard is it for us in the pace of our own spiritual lives and journey to know when we've veered, when we've shifted even so subtly. And that's why we need the text we're looking at this morning in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. We need this text because this text was written to a bunch of Christians in a church or folks who were attending the church, uh, to a young church plant just like ours in a major city just like ours, and these Christians had veered off the gospel. And so 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, was written. It's almost like air traffic control calling out to them and saying, attention, I need your attention. You've got to get back on course. You're headed down a dangerous direction. You're, you're off on a different tangent. And so we need 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, to sort of call all of our hearts back on course as well. Kurt just read it for you, but it's a short passage, so let me read it again so that it's fresh on your hear, in your ears. You've got a Bible underneath your seat, otherwise it'll be on the screen as well. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5 says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pause for a second, a second and ask the Lord for help to understand this passage, and then we'll try and talk through it together. Father, we just want to ask you now to send your Holy Spirit in generous portions to all of us that we might hear this word and understand it. Draw us away from the subtle variance of legalism back to the good news of this faith, Jesus Christ. Let everything be for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For those of you that are just jumping in, I just want to catch you up and say that we're studying through the book of 1 Timothy in this series of preaching, and we've divided this sermon series into two parts. We've been calling part one, repairing the damage, and part two, restoring beauty. And so what's happened here is this once healthy church is now a mess because of things like this. And in this first part, Paul is telling, the apostle Paul of Jesus, is telling this man, Timothy, who was the pastor of this church, here's what you need to do to fix the damage. And this week, he's trying to tell us, here's what you need to do to repair the damage of legalism. Here's the damage of legalism. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. This is what it says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. As Paul gets ready to start talking about the damage of legalism, he starts right off the bat by saying, though this thing is devastating and though this thing is making a mess of the church, it comes as no surprise. Right? That's the first thing he wants to tell Timothy. I know this thing is damaging everything that's happening, but it comes as no surprise. And he says that because he says, now the Spirit expressly says, that is the Holy Spirit of God had abundantly clearly 
explicitly, very clearly made known that in later times, and just so that you know, in the New Testament, whenever you see this later times, it's just a phrase for the time we live in now. That's sort of the Bible's way of saying Jesus came, Jesus is going to come again, and in between these two arrivals of Jesus is the time we live in now. These are the later times. These are the last days. These are the end times. If you know some kooky Christians, they're always trying to figure out the exact date of when it's going to be. And yet in the New Testament, in passages like this one, we're never told the moment or the hour. What we're told is, look, we're living in the last days, in these later times. And this word that Paul was going to say certainly applied to Timothy back then. And it applies to us now because we're both living after Jesus' first arrival and before his second one. So in these times, in the times we're living in right now, that Timothy lived in and we're living, the Spirit of God has expressly said that some will depart from the faith. So pause there for a second. The idea of departing from the faith is the word that we get for apostasy. So it's the idea that there were people, imagine yourself, who went to church Sunday by Sunday, heard the gospel, saw the work of the Holy Spirit, were incorporated into community, saw all these blessings, and then departed. That is, that their heart went one degree off course, and suddenly, rather than being full of Jesus and the gospel, they had departed from the faith. So the Spirit of God has expressly, clearly said that in the times we're living in now, some will apostatize, some will depart from the faith. And how is that going to happen? Paul tells us. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a loaded sentence, so let's break that apart for a second. He's saying, here's how the Spirit has revealed that in the, these times, some will depart from the faith. How is that going to happen? Through the ministry of their leaders. And Paul has some choice words for these leaders. He calls them insincere liars whose consciences are seared. What Paul's saying is that the people in the church are abandoning, going off by one degree from Christianity because of the demonic ministry of the leaders. Now, we've talked about what was happening in Ephesus in chapter 1 just a few weeks ago and how these leaders had strayed off the gospel. And Paul has some, again, choice words to describe what's happened to them. He calls them insincere liars. Some of your translations, if you have another Bible, will say hypocritical liars. That is that these guys have an outward appearance of morality and goodness, and they seem so holy and so godly. It seems like there's a halo glowing around their head, and yet inside they are vile and nasty and ungodly, and there's nothing right or good about them. They're insincere liars. And then he goes on to say, whose consciences have been seared. The, the idea there is that their consciences, some of your translations will say, have been seared as with a hot iron. I want you to hear this because this part is important in this passage. That is that these folks were folks whose consciences have almost been cauterized. They, they have lost their sensitivity. It's sort of dead, and it's lost its feeling. Uh, one commentator named John Stott, he says that this is what's happened. By constantly arguing with conscience, stifling its warnings, and muffling its bell, its voice is smothered and eventually silenced. 
that what happened was you, you can almost picture these folks, every time their conscience would speak to them, they'd shut their ears. And every time their conscience would show them something, they'd close their eyes. And every time their conscience would prick or prod at their heart, they'd harden their heart. And they would buffet their conscience over and over and over again and resist its voice and, and close their eyes to its, its awareness and, and do that over and over again till their conscience became hard and thick and had eventually become seared, as with a hot iron, lost its, its sensitivity. The nerve endings weren't working anymore. I, I want to say that to us because that is a frightful thing. As I was studying through this, I felt as if the Holy Spirit wanted me to pause there and consider my own heart and ask you to consider yours. How often do you find you are closing your ears to your conscience? How often do you find that you're shutting your eyes to what your conscience wants to show you? How often do you find that you're hardening your heart to the little proddings and pricks that the conscience feels? And what Paul's saying is, you do that long enough, and this conscience of yours suddenly becomes tough and thick and dead till it does not feel, till there's no signals, till there's no nerve endings anymore, till, till you've muffled it and quieted it and deadened it so much that you have no capacity anymore for spiritual things. Think about that. These were leaders in the church who were around Jesus and around the Bible and around the church, and yet they had done that to the point that their own consciences had been cauterized, had been seared. I'd say that to some of us. Some of us in the room are young. We're, some of us are teenagers. Some of us are in our 20s or 30s. And some of us have this thought that we'll deal with Jesus later. We've got this season of life and youth and, and all these things to enjoy, and we'll get around to Jesus. And some of us are really thinking we'll deal with Jesus and spiritual things in, in years to come. And I think what the text is saying, I wouldn't bank on that. I wouldn't bank on that, not even just because you don't know if you've got the next minute, not even just because you hear of tragedies all the time and, and you don't know if you'll be around tomorrow, let alone 50 years from now. But I wouldn't bank on that because the text is saying, look, a lifetime of hardening your heart and closing your eyes and shutting your ears is not going to leave you in the end suddenly sensitive to spiritual things. If you've spent a lifetime closing your ears to spiritual things, what makes you think that 50 years from now they'll be open? If you've spent a lifetime silencing the voice you hear in your conscience, what makes you think that you'll be sensitive to a whisper from God 50 years from now? If you've been shutting your eyes to what God's showing you now, what makes you think that when you're old and gray, that suddenly your eyes will see clearly? No, if you put to death this conscience over and over again, that's exactly what you'll do. You'll harden it to the point that you lose sensitivity and receptivity. You begin to lose the capacity for spiritual things. It should serve as a sober warning to us that it is not a safe practice to constantly muffle your conscience. And that's what happened with these Ephesian leaders. I, I want you to notice the progression. The progression is that these folks quieted their conscience to the point that they essentially, in the text, become the mouthpiece for Satan. Did you hear the text? That through their ministry was spread throughout the church the teachings of deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 
That is that essentially they would get up Sunday by Sunday and rather than being messengers of God and his gospel, they unwittingly became the mouthpiece for Satan. That demonic doctrine was going forth in this church every single week. And so the progression is that these leaders quiet their conscience till their consciences are seared to the point that they now become the mouthpiece for Satan and so that the folks who are listening to their ministry find themselves devoted to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons until they depart from the faith. I mean, that is the kind of damage that's happening in the church at Ephesus. So what is this demonic doctrine? I mean, is Paul exaggerating a bit here? What, what is it that's so bad that's coming from the pulpit? Verse 3, this is what it says who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Let me read that again. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here's what was happening in Ephesus. Technically, it might be more appropriate to call all of this by a different ism. Rather than legalism, the more technical term would be asceticism. That basically what they're doing is this sort of extreme form of self-denial. Denying themselves certain things, but at the root it's the same heart, which is they figured that by avoiding certain things, you know, they would have a better standing with God. They wouldn't be JV Christians like the rest of us. They would be varsity Christians, right? And how do you get to be a varsity Christian? Well, you deny yourself. And so they found two basic human appetites that all of us have, hunger and sex. And they figured, you know what? These two are, are so part of our baser instincts. They're just so material, so worldly. And to be varsity Christians, if we can suppress and deny these basic desires that we have, we will have achieved a, a holier status, be closer to God, be better than everyone else. And so they figured, look, every human being has this desire for food, this desire for sex, and to be really holy, you've got to suppress that. And, and just so you know, if that sounds weird to you, if you just look throughout church history, that's been taught all the time. Leaders have wrongly said that all the time. In fact, sex is often seen as this vile, nasty, dirty desire within us that should be suppressed as best as possible. Church leaders throughout church history would often call for abstinence from sex, even calling married folks to as best as much as possible abstain from sex because it was vile and dirty and nasty and somehow connected to our body. And somehow this whole body, one day we just want to be rid of it and then we'll truly and finally be spiritual. All of that is as far from Christianity as you could possibly imagine. I mean, Jesus rose with a body. You're never going to be rid of the body. It's going to be redeemed and glorified and made better for sure, but it's, it's part of what he's made. It's part of what he's redeemed. It's going to be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. But they figured, look, if we could just get rid of all of this, then we'd be varsity. So here's what they did. The Ephesian elders went to the church and said, that's it. No more sex. How do we do that? We outlaw marriage. So nobody's getting married anymore. The wedding ceremonies are done. We forbid marriage. And they know they can't survive long if they forbid all food, so they at least go certain types of food. No one's eating meat anymore. So no more marriage, no more meat. We become varsity Christians. 
And all the guys in the room know that's demonic, right? No stakes, no sex. That has to come from Satan, right? How did you get all the men in the church to believe that? That must be demonic, right? And so here, here's what they figured. If we could advocate celibacy and vegetarianism, we will be varsity. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with celibacy, right? The scriptures say that that is a gift God gives to some so that they can be fully devoted to the Lord in a way that married folk can't. In fact, the New Testament will say it's a gift that if you have wife and children or husband and children, you have certain limitations to what you can do in such a way that a celibate single person doesn't. They're free to serve the Lord in greater ways than married folk. It's a gift. But that's exactly what it is. It's a gift given to some, not a requirement for all. And likewise, vegetarianism or, or restraining yourself from certain foods. We're in a season of Lent. Many of you grew up with a tradition of Lent. Some of you are practicing Lent right now. And in this season, as you prepare yourself for Jesus and his work in the death and resurrection of Jesus, some of you have restrained yourselves voluntarily of certain things. In fact, some of you may be in a season right now when you're not eating meat. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is commendable, not condemnable. It's not wrong for us to practice discipline within ourselves, to restrain certain things from ourselves so that we might grow our appetite for God. Hear that again. It's not wrong for us to restrain ourselves and set for ourselves certain disciplines so that by restraining we might grow our appetite for God. But what they were doing was making this a rule for all and defining this is what it means to really be godly. And everybody should follow these rules we decided to make up. And by doing them, you're varsity with us. And if you're not, you're not. So what is it about vegetarianism and celibacy that has Paul so up in arms that he's willing to say this is demonic? That's the question, right? What's so bad about this that Paul would say this is the teaching of demons? I wouldn't say two things, and then I'll wrap up. For one, it's legalism, and legalism smacks against the work of God in creation. Why this is such an offense to God is because this smacks against the work of God in creation. Look at verses 3 to 5 again. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving not rejected, received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is such an affront to God, so offensive to God, because it smacks against the work of God in creation. What do I mean? What Paul is sort of referencing to here is what you find in the very first pages of your Bible. If you open your Bible and you come to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you have this account of God making everything. And when you read those two chapters, you find that there's this refrain over and over again. And what's the refrain? After God makes everything, he keeps pronouncing, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. 
And what the Ephesian leaders are doing is they are labeling bad what God has already pronounced is good. Right? Verse 5, what was made holy by the word of God, what God had already declared good, they have labeled bad. They have stuck a taboo on what God has already put his stamp of approval on. God made food. God made marriage. God made sex. God made these things for us to receive with thanksgiving. And they've labeled bad what God has already pronounced to be good. And if you hear closely enough, if you listen closely enough, you can almost hear the hiss of the serpent in that. Because that's what the serpent has done. That's what he's always done. What God has made right side up, the serpent comes and makes upside down. The serpent has never had an original idea of his own. Everything he's ever done is to take what God has made and twist it and pervert it. He's not creative. And so what he does is he distorts creation. So when, he, when you were in the garden, God said, don't touch that. He said, touch it. What God calls bad, he calls good. What God calls good, he calls bad. It would almost be just as wicked if the serpent came and said, God said you could eat all these other trees, don't touch any of them. That's sort of what's happening here. God has given you all these things, Ephesians, and yet through their ministry, you could hear the hiss of the serpent saying, don't touch. And this is the way s Satan works in our lives for many of us. For some of us, he'll come and say, God has said no to that, you should enjoy that. For others of us, he'll come and say, God has said enjoy that, you should say no to that. He's never had a creative idea. In fact, all he wants to do is come and constantly invert that which God has given. And so here you hear his hiss as he begins to speak through these insincere liars and causes them to put on the people rules and regulations that were not a part of God's creation. But here's the second thing and the last thing I want to say. It also offends the work of of God in salvation. Legalism is so horrific, it's so demonic, because not only does it offend the work of God in creation, it also offends the work of God in salvation. Listen to me. On the surface, if we're honest, this all sounds really noble. If you found a whole church of people that were abstaining themselves from food and sex, that would sound weird, but you'd also go, oh my, those guys are really holy, right? And that's what's so genius about this whole thing. The Bible says that when Satan comes, he's not going to come with horns and a pitchfork and red tights. You'd see him. You'd know him. He's going to come as an angel of light. Clever, subtle, smooth, disguised. It's going to sound so godly. And the genius of legalism is that it's so close. It's one degree off. The genius of legalism is he doesn't tell you to do bad things. He tells you to do good things for the wrong reasons. That's genius. It's morality. It's God's laws. It's God's commands that he's taking and he's shifting ever so subtly. That's the genius of legalism. And by doing that, what he gets you to do is you take out Jesus. The genius of legalism is he offends God's work of salvation because essentially what legalism is is Jesus thank you for dying on the cross thank you for rising again but I'm just sorry that's not enough so I've got to add to it that's horrible news the good news was what 
Jesus Christ came, lived our perfect life. We had, if, if, you, if I could use this metaphor, we had terrible resumes, all of us. None of us were going to get God's acceptance with our resume. The gospel is the good news that Jesus had a perfect resume, and at the cross we traded resumes. So he took my horrible one, he gave me his perfect one. You know what legalism does? Legalism grabs some crayons and starts adding to that resume and thinking, now God will be really impressed. Imagine that. It's, it's like one preacher said, you've been given the resume of Jesus, and imagine grabbing a crayon and said, and also I didn't eat sausage. <laughs> right? Really? That, that's what you're going to put on the resume. You have Jesus' perfect resume in your place for your sins, and rather than standing in that righteousness, you're telling God, look at what I scribbled in crayon. That's the stuff that's really important. That's what's so offensive about legalism. The work of Jesus in your place for your sins doesn't become sufficient, and you're going to bank your soul on some petty things that you have done or some things you have avoided. You're going to make a bunch of rules so that you can add to that resume. And then it's offensive to God. So how do we remedy legalism when it rears its head? Just listen one more time to verse 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You fight the lie of legalism. That's what it is. It's a lie. How do you fight any lie? With truth. You extinguish a lie with the truth. So when legalism comes... You extinguish the lie of legalism with the truth of the gospel. So when legalism says it's by avoiding marriage or certain foods that you're made holy, the gospel comes and says it's not by rejecting God's gifts and his grace that we're made holy, but by receiving them with thanksgiving. It's holy to receive with thanksgiving God's good gifts and his grace. Let me give you one word of application as, as to how this might play out. Whenever legalism rears its ugly head, you hammer it with the truth of the gospel. So legalism will say to you, as an example, legalism will say to you, obey so that God will love you. And you must combat that with the truth of the gospel, which is, I am loved by God, and so I obey. You've heard that probably before. Legalism will say, I obey, therefore I am loved. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey. And you might say to me, Ajay, that's just a rearrangement of words. No, it's, it's one degree, and yet that degree makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between demonic legalism and godly gospel. I am loved, therefore I obey. That's the way the gospel works. It's always gospel, then obedience. Grace, then obedience. Not the other way around. Every other worldview is obedience, then God. Christianity is the one worldview where it's gospel, God's work, then obedience. I, I saw this in Exodus 20. Let me give you an example. Exodus 20 is the listing of the Ten Commands. When you think of law or commands or obedience, you think of Ten Commands. The first command is, you shall have no other God but me. Go back and look at Exodus 20. And what you'll find is that's not how the chapter starts. 
The law does not start with, you shall have no other God before me. The law starts, Exodus 20 starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other God before me. So you tell me, what comes first, law or good news? Gospel. If we were writing the story of Exodus, we would have said, chapter one, you're slaves. Chapter two, here's a bunch of commandments to follow. If you follow them, here's chapter three, I'll rescue you. But Exodus works as chapter one, you're slaves. Chapter two onwards, I'm going to rescue you because I'm gracious and good and merciful. And then chapter 20, because I've done all that, because you're now mine, obey. Because you are what I have made you, because I've rescued you, because you belong to me, respond with obedience. I obey not to get God's love. I obey because I am loved. And that works its way in how you see all of life. When you grab your children to discipline them, don't say to them, you better obey so that you can be a part of this family and we'll love you. That is antithetical to the gospel. Instead, grab them and say, you are a part of this family. You are loved. So don't behave that way. Obey. Who they are must precede what they must do because who you are in Christ precedes what you must do. All your obedience without Christ is worthless. But if you're in Christ, you'll live different because of who you are. Right? And, and through all of this, here's the end of it all. If you stay with legalism, that trajectory is going to get you to one of two places. You're either going to be proud or hate yourself. That's the only two options. If you stay with this, I'm going to build on my resume life, you're going to end up in one of two places. Either you're going to go, I kept all the rules. Look how awesome I am. And you're going to boast and be proud, and you're going to look down on all the other people who couldn't keep your rules. Or the only other option is you're going to realize you couldn't keep any of the rules and you're going to hate yourself. You're going to loathe yourself. What a loser I am. I can't keep these rules. And the gospel takes you in a completely different trajectory. The gospel says if you follow Jesus, you're, you're not going to be proud. You're going to be humble because you're going to know this wasn't worth, this wasn't based on your resume. Y you've never done anything to earn God. But at the same time, it's going to give you confidence. You have Jesus' resume. You're not going to improve on that. How much better am I going to get than Jesus' resume in my place for my sins? So here's what Paul would say to us. The damage of legalism is demonic, and its remedy is the gospel. So may the Holy Spirit drive us all there. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for good news. Don't let us trade it for bad news. Bad news is we work to get you. Good news is you've already done all the work to get to us. Where you've said it's finished on the cross, don't let us add more to it. Help us to be good, obedient people in response to your love as opposed to trying to gain or achieve your love. Help us to have a posture where we receive rather than reject God's good gifts and his grace. Help us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.